Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. We had a, uh, Elizabeth and myself had a lovely evening on Friday night. We were out with Elizabeth's good friend, or really many of us, her best friend, Alison. Some of you will know of her. She's been at things in the past here, family things and in fact, many years ago, I think she spoke at something to do with the fact that she is a, a, a counsellor, uh, I mean a political counsellor. She served in Falkirk Council for a good number of years. In fact, she was the deputy provost there at one time um, and very faithfully serves the needs of her constituents in a, a large part of Grangemouth. And she is marking the big 6-0 this year. A lot of us are. And um, we were out with her um, a number of years ago, and again, some of you will remember this or know this, a number of years ago, her husband, who was a dear friend of ours, committed suicide and left Alison with a, a wee boy that they adopted who had severe learning difficulties, who has severe learning difficulties, and yet God has been good. As a girl who came to faith, actually through Elizabeth's encouragement um, at school all those years ago, a girl who came to faith and who's been through many trials, she was talking away just quite the thing on um, Friday night, and alongside that, it was a joy to have Colin and Emma and Gregor and Sarah with us, a lovely family gathering. However, we nearly caused a rupture. Um, my daughter-in-law and her family are very committed supporters of the Scottish National Party. Um, Alison is a Labour councillor, and I was at the top, and I'm not telling you what my political persuasions are, uh, and I was at the top end of the table, and Alison and I got into a discussion about the search in the Labour Party for IU leader, which is going on at the present time, and what she thought of the various um, candidates or contestants, depending how you view the whole process, and we got into discussion, and we did venture onto a number of things until my wife gave us both a glower, (laughs) (laughs) and reminded us that we better watch what we're saying. We didn't want to cause any disruption within the happy gathering. Um, but but, but um, Alison was just speaking, and she spoke about Jeremy Corbyn, the, the, the existing leader of the Labour Party, and, and of how she had met him on a number of occasions, and she's quite involved in Labour in Scotland, and, and how she spoke warmly of the fact he was a man of integrity, as a man of integrity, he believed, and above everything else, he generally desires, as indeed most politicians of any party uh, in our country, desire to see our country improve building Jerusalem and England or Scotland's green and pleasant land, the desire to see our society be a fair society and a just society, a society that's built on good foundations, Um, although he's certainly not a man of faith at all, um, but built on some kind of moral foundation. But he, like many other politicians who are very genuine, as I say, from all the political parties, who are very genuine, people like Tim Farrer and others who are very genuine and who desire to see things improve and all the rest of it, and the reality of the bear pit that is not just politics, but is government in this country, or indeed in any country of the world, well, things, it's easy to say, it's not so easy to actually see worked out. And he particularly fell victim to whole issues to do with anti-Semitism and a whole number of other issues. And, and actually, Alison was saying that although she knows a number of the candidates who are standing, she is somewhat sceptical about any of them being able to achieve very much. There's somebody who's served in local politics for 20 years. That's interesting, isn't it? It's easy to say things. It's easy and, and can be a very true expression of your genuine desire to see society change, to see lives improved, to see those who are outcasts become members and welcome and in the heart of things, those who are poor lifted up, those who are rather um, haughty and cocky brought down. You, you can have that desire, 
but history tells us that if you use military or political or social might to achieve these ends, you end up with certainly less than a fair and just and open and free society. Look at the failed attempts of various forms of totalitarianism to do that, including, I mean, only in China could you, ga could you garrison a city or an area of what, 18 million people and force them to stay indoors. Do you imagine trying to do that in Glasgow? But the result. And those, and we've been looking at Matthew's gospel, and Matthew is very keen to help his readers and help us to see that Jesus isn't um, just, he is a prophet, he is a priest, he isn't king, but he isn't just a prophet. He's not just somebody who brings God's word into a particular setting. He's the fulfillment of what the Old Testament said. He is that word incarnate. He is the king, and he's heralding a kingdom that's very different. Matthew's very keen to emphasize that this Jesus not only says things, but has the power and the potential to deliver the goods. And in our own society, where people rightly are skeptical, not just of politicians, but of professional people and everybody else, practically teachers and everybody else, who generally get up and say things, but then often find it hard to either live up to that or to see that worked out, it's vital as Christians that we affirm that not only what Jesus says is true, but it's true because it actually becomes a reality. So let's read part of his kingdom agenda. This is, in a sense, him presenting, um, not just to the people who heard him on the mountainside, but to us, to the world, his agenda, his program, his policy statement of what this kingdom is going to be about. And obviously we're not, I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones in the middle of the last century, one of the great preachers of the last century, did 26 sermons, I think it was in the Sermon on the Mount, and produced a weighty tome, which, would be, which, which was about this size of, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. We are obviously not doing that as we seek to journey through the gospel in the run-up to Easter, but we are going to dip in this morning to three specific passages. So let's start by reading Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's Jesus gathering on a mountain top. Here's a wee question for you, just to make sure you haven't fallen asleep yet. What other mountain top stories are there in the Bible? What other mountain top stories are there in the Bible? Oh, well, there we are. Impressive, impressive. We've got visitors in the morning. Very encouraged, <laughs> very encouraged. Yes, sorry, God. The Ten Commandments. Somebody else said, was that what you were going to say? Right, bless you. Yes, the Ten Commandments. And actually, that's the, that's the right answer. Because actually, the setting is important. 
the setting for any public speech, any public proclamation, any announcement of new tidings is important. And the setting here is important. It's not by a coincidence that Jesus is on a mountain. It's a direct connection. It's meant to cause people, and it's good that it's causing us to think back to that mountaintop experience where God, the Father, appeared in the cloud and the fire, but nonetheless spoke to Moses and gave to him God's deal, God's program, God's covenant for his people. And here Jesus is on the mountain, not in smoke and cloud and fire. Here is the word, as I said earlier, the word has become flesh, encountering people where they are, as they are. But nonetheless, here he is on a mountaintop, bringing God's new covenant, new terms, new program for his people and for his kingdom. And he uses the word blessed. Now, some versions, some your versions of the Bible, the good use, and other versions talk about happy. Happy are those. That's really not a, a good translation of what is meant here. Actually, what is meant here is meant, again, to remind the readers and hopefully remind us of a promise given many years before, many centuries before, to, in a sense, the founder of the Jewish people, to Abraham, when God said to Abraham that through him and through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. By the way, not in the way that if you were listening to the radio service this morning, which I do most Sundays, and it was to do with the Holocaust Memorial Day, a very right thing to mark. But interesting enough, the speaker there said, blessed in tolerance and peace. That's not what it says. It just says, blessed. And what does it mean? And Jesus here is saying, what does it mean to be blessed as descendants of Abraham, as those who, like Abraham, faith in God's promises and therefore are counted to be right? Not those who put their trust in ritual and religion and deeds already. We saw John the Baptist challenges that and has said to them that that is not on. That's not what's going to happen. Do you remember, just to read it to you, back in, John, in Matthew chapter 3, and John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, and he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The fruit that God is looking for, the fruit that's going to be produced in lives who, like Abraham, have faith in God, is the fruit of being blessed. And being blessed in the most, perhaps, you might say the most extreme of circumstances, poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, as I say, we could obviously spend a whole day and indeed many days going through each one. We're not. But, you know, this is the various states. Being merciful to those who need to be shown mercy. Being pure in heart. Being peacemakers. And then he goes on to say being persecuted, especially persecuted for righteousness' sake. The world will look at these things and say, well, that's certainly not been very blessed. Contemporary Britain would say that's not being very blessed. What's being blessed is being secure. What's being blessed is having security in your home, on the assets you might have bought, or the things you might acquire. 
Being blessed is having security in your job and in your profession and in your status and position in life. Being blessed is being secure in your relationships and things that are going to bring you happiness and meet your innermost emotional needs. That is how to be blessed. Now, none of those things in themselves are wrong, but Jesus here is saying, that's not in my kingdom, the test of being blessed. He actually, as Karen very faithfully does so often, remind us right at the beginning with all of us together, being blessed in God's kingdom is turning the world upside down. Oh, by the way, is that not what was accused of the church of the Christians in the book of Acts? Of how dangerous these Christians were because they were turning the world upside down. But of course, in our contemporary society, we have to confess, myself included, that so often we seek to be blessed with the very things we've said earlier, insecurity in the things of this world, the things that are passing, the things that are temporal. It's actually ironic, isn't it, that as our society has sought to find blessing in all these things, which, as I say, of themselves are not wrong, it's the money is not the problem, it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil, for instance. It's bread is not wrong, but we shall not live by bread alone. But as we sought to find our security and our blessed state in these things, well, those of us who are a wee bit older, is Britain any happier in 2020? Is our world any more secure in 2020 than... No. Why do you think the Chinese are so worried about this virus? not just the cold. And in such a world of uncertainty where, as Jesus said, in the latter days, which obviously is the day from his ascension to his day of return, but in these latter days there'll be wars and rumors of wars, there'll be plagues, there'll be famines, there'll be fires, there'll be flood, there'll be all sorts of things going on. What it is to be blessed in his kingdom, to be countercultural, to bear the fruit that comes from knowing God is actually to know Emmanuel, God with us, in all the changing scenes and circumstances of life. Remember, it's Matthew particularly who affirms that in the story of Joseph. Remember, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said in the dream that Joseph had. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And you're to name the child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, the kingdom of Jesus is about real root issues. Not about our bank balances or how big our house is or how well our career is going on. It's about dealing with the heart of the matter. It's about bringing God and the reality of God into the midst of the realities of life. And that's what Matthew and that's what Jesus particularly is wanting to affirm. That's what it is to be blessed, to know Emmanuel in all the changing scenes of life. That's what the church and the world testifies to, the suffering church, the reality of the martyrs, the reality of people today living in the camps around Syria and Iraq and elsewhere, the ancient churches of Christ that have been torn apart by all that's happened, by those who have seen their children martyred and crucified, by, by Daesh and by all these evil things that are going on. They're not happy. They're not jumping up and down for joy. They're broken. They're in tears. 
but they also testify to the blessed state of knowing God. The God who said in the psalmist, yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow, I will be with you. Notice what that psalms, we often sing these, well, we used to be singing these psalms at funerals. We don't really understand it, do we? It's not, you're not going to go through the dark valley. It's, I'm going to be with you, dark valley. It's not, yes, you're going to be crowned and blessed, but where? In the midst of my enemies. He restores my soul and will lead me by green pastures. That's what Jesus means by being blessed. God with us. Let's sing together again a hymn that draws from the inspiration of Scripture. Through all the changing scenes of life and trouble and in joy, the praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ. And we'll stand to sing. Well, let's move on to Matthew chapter 6. And to these verses. And reading from verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life, or as some versions put it, single cubit to your height? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It was one of the largest funerals I had to do in Carmyle. Um, the fellow had dropped dead on the way to his work in his early 50s. Maybe he wasn't even in his early 50s. He was connected. His grandmother, by marriage was it, Mrs. Harrison. Meryl, I don't know if Meryl's here this morning, but Mrs. Harrison, she was a, she was a stalwart of the church. And I think that was, I think it was her grand, or maybe by marriage, her grandson. Anyway, he was a leading light in the village. He had done well for himself. 
He, um, in, in Carmel, there definitely was a pecking order of where you lived and what you acquired. But even so, you could move up the social scale, but you still stayed in Carmel. And, and, and he had done that. John, John Reed, his name was. No relation, I don't think, to the, to the politician. Um, but as I say, he had dropped dead. And I was asked to do a funeral. I was asked to do many funerals. I was joking with the guys on Thursday night. At one point, I was up to about 90 funerals a year. If it had gone on like that, nobody had been left in Carmel. Um, but um, so I did his funeral. However, on the day of his funeral, I noticed, and he wasn't a churchgoer or whatever else, but I was well used to doing just, you know, happy-go-lucky punters, um, pro secular Protestants in, in the village. But on the day of the funeral, when his, his coffin arrived, and I say the place was full, obviously because of his age, because he was well-known, he was in this club and that club and this group and that group. And as I say, he had, he had done well for himself. There was two plaques, which isn't usual on the coffin. And I was saying to the guys on Thursday night, I wish I had written down what was on the second plaque. I did have a look at the first plaque. I think it was one of those weeks where I had quite a few funerals. And I know I shouldn't really tell you this as a professional minister, but sometimes you're terrified you're going to get mixed up. And you give thanks to God for John, when actually it's Jesse. And, and so yeah, I said, we glanced to make sure it was John, you know, make sure it was the right one. Um, and then underneath I read this little plaque. And as I say, I wish I'd written down what it. Basically, it said, I'm nothing there is nothing. But it was more than that. There was four lines. It was obviously taken from some thinker or some philosopher, whatever else, you know. So I am nothing and there is nothing. But as I say, it was more than that. Well, I read a good bit of that passage at the funeral. And I then said, what I have to say, I, I didn't always say, I then said, well, John now knows different from what he certainly said on top of his coffin, that there is nothing. Someone who had secured much in life. Someone who invested his life in things, some things which were commendable enough, and other things which were perhaps maybe not so commendable, but we'll not go into that. Someone who had, one of the reasons he died in his early 50s was he'd had a number of heart attacks, and who I was told was stressed and worried about how his business was doing and about everything else. And back in the 1990s, I think there was, there was yet again a downturn in the economy. And somebody who worried about that, again, understandably so, and all these different things. And there he was found lying dead in a track over a railway bridge from Carmel to Westburn. Not exactly the most glamorous place to pass on to. And someone who was so sufficiently confident of what he thought that even at a funeral service conducted by a minister, he had obviously left desires, or his wife had left desires, that there should be a plaque affirming his atheism and his humanism. Nowadays, of course, 20 years later, that wouldn't be thought as being strange. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow, well, we'll see. We'll see. And that society that seeks first not God and it's his kingdom, but self and self-security and self-satisfaction and selfish interests, it finds what Jesus says, nonsense. The foolishness, as the Bible tells us, of the gospel. Foolishness to those who are looking for intellectual fancies. Foolishness who, though, who want things that are going to meet their demands in the here and now. But those who have eyes to see and ears to hear the very word of life. If your eyes are unhealthy, 
And obviously he's not talking here, but you need to go to the petitions. But if what you're taking into your life, and if what you're seeing in a sense is your goal, your purpose, and your reason, nature for being, what you're taking into your life is spiritually dark, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if that is the light within you, Jesus says, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either we hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, not just money. That, as I say, that's more than that. It's the material. And yet we're told the way to be blessed is to store up for ourselves treasures. To draw together what we can hold on to. And yet in the midst of all of that, in a society where more and more find they can't even store up the treasures and they can't hold on to what they have, then one wonders, one can't be surprised when people turn to suicide or drugs or other ways to escape the realities of what they're having to face. So sick, so dark is the darkness when the light of life is not allowed to penetrate. And that's why, as the second part is so important to us, that's why as Christians, as people of God, as those who want to know and are called to produce the fruit of being blessed, we need to hear what Jesus is saying. What it means to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What it means not to worry about tomorrow. What Jesus is meaning here, not that we don't make plans for various things. I have to confess, Elizabeth um, I can confess her sin, not mine, because she's out in the room at the moment. Um, I had to confess Elizabeth has a, has a, has a, a desire at the, between Christmas and New Year to get the laptop out. I don't know what she did before there was bro before that, and had to get brochures and organize our holiday plans for the coming year. Well, she's done that. I could tell you here and now where I'm going, but I don't want to distract you by worldly things while we're listening to the Word of God, so I'm not going to tell you. But nonetheless, yes, of course we make our plans. It's not saying that. But what he's saying is that if we're looking at tomorrow and singing, it's mine and I must have it and it belongs to me, then we're going to find that like the sand that we grasp and goes through our fingers, tomorrow is not ours. Only today, only now. And as some of us know only too well, however precious the things of this world may be, however good and right they may well be, they are like the flowers in the field only for a season and then passed away. From dust we came, from dust we will return. Blessed be the name of our God. And as our society has lost sight of that, and yes, even as professing Christians within the church has lost sight of that, so we have found ourselves sucked into that darkness and that treadmill. It's a bit like the hamster or the wee wheel, you know, running around, trying to keep things up wearing ourselves out and giving us heart attacks and doing us what else in the midst of the pressures and demands of such a nowhere, no going anywhere life. Seek first God's kingdom, his values, his program, his agenda for your life. And when we talk about your life, we don't just mean, again, we, we see it from such a Western me-centered me -centered meaning. What it actually <laughs> means is, yes, obviously it's to do with who I am, but it's to do with who I am in the community of faith and in the community of the world. Israel was to be that light to the nations in order that people could see the difference that living with God under the terms of the old covenant would bring. 
It would be so blessed. It would prosper in the right way that nations round about would say, my goodness, these Jewish people, they certainly have something that I don't have. That was their calling. And that's the calling of the user, the church of God. Our life together, our values, our community, the things that are important to us are meant to say to our neighbors, to our colleagues at work, to those who are round about us, are meant to say to us, you know, following Jesus brings a radically different kind of life which isn't a quick fix to all our problems, isn't escapism to the reality, but it's knowing Emmanuel, God with us in them. And some of us know the reality of that, I know that. And how I thank God down through 31 years of being a minister, I've learned often more from the folks in the pews than they've probably learned from me, as I've seen that borne out in people's lives, including dear saints in Carmyle and at Mount Vernon and here. as they've sought first God's kingdom and righteousness in the midst of all these things, they've known that that peace which does pass all human understanding does indeed keep their hearts and minds fixed in the love and in the knowledge of God. But in the snowflake generation where a puff of trial, you know, suddenly seems to just throw us all to the, ah, what am I going to do? God help us. I mean that reverently so. God help us to rediscover what it means to take him seriously and to put him first. Oh God, again, drawing from Scripture this song, Oh God, you search me, you know me, all my thoughts lie open to your gaze. When I walk or lie down, you are before me, ever the maker and keeper of my days. And again, we'll stand to sing. And lastly, and I'm actually going to read a bit more, okay? So I'm going to read from verse 7 of chapter 7. Not that we're, as I say, this is not an exhaustive expository insight to all these verses, far from it. But it's so good sometimes just to hear Scripture, just to hear Jesus, not me prattling on, but to hear Jesus. Ask, Jesus says, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or who asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I said at the beginning, we're speaking to Alison, a Christian lady who served very faithfully as a counselor, and her comments were very insightful. Her comments appreciating the integrity and the sincerity of many people who seek to lead, not just the Labour Party, who seek to lead our nation, not being party political here. It would be wrong for us, and I warned about this before the general election, to fall into the spirit of cynicism, to think that everybody who stands for election is just in it for what they can get for themselves or anything else. That's not right. It's not worthy as Christians we should think that, and, and, and certainly it's not the case. However, the problem is, isn't it, as I said right at the beginning, is that we can have good intentions. We can desire good things. Paul, indeed, in Romans talks about that. We can want to do the right thing, but we find a law within ourselves and a law within people, within our culture, within our community that militates against it. Jesus actually expounds on that after later on in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks about that. He talks about the law of God, and he says, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you sit with adulterous thoughts, you're just breaking the law just as much in a sense as if you were, you're on the way off with somebody else. Do not commit murder, but if in your hearts you've got angry and resentful and destructive thoughts, then you're breaking the commandment. Just again, just almost as bad as those who actually go and do the deed. The law, you see, reveals the corrupt state of our human heart and of our society's brokenness and fragility. We can desire good things. And it all began in the garden. Back to Genesis, isn't it? I'm always telling you that. Back to Genesis. And they saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was pleasant to the eye. And remember the serpent who comes along and says to Eve, and then Eve says to Adam, no, did God say? Casting doubt on what God had said. Doesn't it look nice? And if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God because you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. I still remember, bless Robert, that first children's address 21 years ago, biting into the apple here, bless him. Thank the Lord, he's serving faithfully the Lord down in Oxford now, but he came out and did the children's address and bit into the apple. It was apple picking. Some of their eyes were opened. And they saw they were naked. And filled with shame, they hid away from God. 
And so you see, my friends, with all the best intentions, with all the good desires, with all the longings, there's that corrupting desire to be like, God, I'm the king of the castle. Let's build the Tower of Babel. Let's be like God and get to the heavens. And God says, you think so? And he has his way of pulling the rug from underneath us, both personally and corporately. And the false prophets and the false teachers come along and they say all sorts of things. They promise a fast track to that state of blessedness, that broad road that Jesus tells us lead to destruction. And how people can't see it, as I, I must be getting old, you know, in the, the, the state of our society and the sickness of our society, how they can't see the validity of what Jesus is warning against, you know, but never mind, they don't, their eyes are darkened and they cannot see that broad road that's leading where? A broken fractured, unhappy, and terminally sick society. You know, the great empire of Rome fell. It wasn't the, the, the Huns, I don't mean the Germans, but you know, it wasn't ultimately them who came and overwhelmed them. It was the corruptness and the rottenness and the emptiness within that led to the destruction of their society. And we see that hole. We see that blackness. We see the false prophets, and we see even people within the church who'll say, oh, but, you know, let's not be too kind of, you know, harsh or intolerant. Let's be open and inclusive and all the rest of it. Good-sounding words, but with very different agendas. And we need to be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. How many of us remember that, those of us who were in Sunday school? Yeah remember building the chairs up, even at Mount Vernon, yes, building the chairs up. And that is so vital as the sandy foundations of our society and of so many people's lives in a society will increasingly be revealed. And when I say that with no sense of joy, our satisfaction, our rubbing our hands, and indeed that is wrong, that's as much wrong as the the falseness of prophets, that's not the right spirit. Jesus does say, deal with others as you'd have them deal with you. It should fill our hearts with grief and sorrow. But it does mean that we should stand the rock of ages, the great I am. And in the midst of the wind and the waves and the storms and the calamities and the trials, then there's a right sense in which Christians, not relying on themselves, not that arrogant pride that puts folk off, but in that humble brokenness that testifies to the one who stands in the midst of the storms and commands the wind and the waves to be still, our hope is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who will not let our foot slip. He who holds Israel will also hold us. How we need to pray that there would be those in the church and through the church today who would speak with authority so that those who are looking and listening, Elizabeth was spending some time with one of the families, one of the women that we have dealings with, whose life is in a fractured and broken state for a whole host of things. And the girl was just saying, you know, it's true, you know, what's happening and what I hear and what I see and all the rest of it. And we need to be those who are standing on that rock. 
and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it does not fall because its foundations are on the rock. What foundations have you built your life upon? What foundations are you building your life upon? The one who is that cornerstone, that rock, who holds the whole history of our world in his hands and who will come again. And this earth will be consumed by fire, but by you heaven and a new earth. And his people, those who he has bought with his blood, will be ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven. Is that the one in whom we build our foundation? That we ask from, that we knock and seek and look to? Because if it's not, then from dust we came. And to dust we will surely Purify my heart. May it be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold, pure gold. Remain seated as we sing this and as we bring our offering. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.